The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Pod. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. Thank you. Okay, so, uh, well, welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. Uh, my name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. In Democracy and Its Critics, uh, Robert Dahl said the most common criticism of democracy is it's not democratic enough. Some scholars like Rosalind Fuller and Majid Baruzi believe uh, democracy literally does imply direct democracy, then kind of going off that idea, uh, usually through things like re referendums and initiatives. Anything else for them is not quite democratic enough. But those ideas are largely based on purely philosophical arguments. Uh, today, we're going to be looking uh, at the work of Joshua Dick and Edward Lasher, who focus on the impact of referendums and initiatives on political culture. Uh, their book, Initiatives Without Engagement, A Realistic Appraisal of Direct Democracy's Secondary Effects, is heavily based on empirical research with some surprising findings. I am excited to have them both here with me today. Now, just to uh, begin, Josh and Ted, uh, can you tell me just a little bit about yourselves? Why don't we start with uh, Josh? You could just yeah. kind of describe yourself. Yep. Yeah. Uh, hi, Justin. Uh, thanks for uh, having us here today. Uh, yeah, I'm Josh Dick. Uh, I'm an associate professor uh, at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Uh, I also am the director of the Center for Public Opinion there, so I run a bunch of polls. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've been studying direct democracy and Ted and I have been working on projects together since he called me on the phone uh, a few years ago. We were both working on a paper on, uh, on direct democracy and political efficacy. And uh, you know, it's the purest co-author relationship I have. You know, we, he, what, it wasn't an advisor advisee thing. We weren't, you know, we didn't work together in graduate school. We were just working on the same thing he called me and we've been working on projects on ballot initiatives ever since. Ted, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? Yes, I, so I'm Ted Lasher and I'm a professor of public policy and administration at Sacramento State, California State University, Sacramento. And I'm also department chair and have previously served as um, interim dean and associate dean of the College of Social Sciences there. Um, I've been working on uh, research on direct democracy since the mid-90s, but my interest in direct democracy probably goes back to when I was a kid, and I would argue um, with my father about this, and my father was much more skeptical about direct democracy, and I was much more of an advocate at that point. Funny thing, as maybe your son, Justin, will find as you get... <laughs> I think my dad was mostly right. Uh, so uh, 
so I, this is one of the main things I've, and I enjoy my collaboration with Josh over the years. And as he said, we've become good friends and have worked on a whole bunch of, bunch of things together. Now, Ted, you're in California right now. Are you originally from California as well? I am. I've been a, all my entire life in California, except six years in exile. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, that, that makes a lot of sense because you have a really firm historical background on California referendums and initiatives in particular. Right. I would assume that's kind of some of the discussions that you had with your father growing up then. That's right. Okay. Very cool. Um, well, to kind of dive into the book, um, I'd like to kind of walk through some of the key findings before we move on to some other questions about direct democracy in general. Um, I saw three key findings, and you may bring up a few others um, based, on, uh, based on some different tests and methodologies that you used. The first was that initiatives tend to increase mobilization without increasing interest in issues. I mean, that's essentially the title of the book. Uh, you write that, um, you write, quote, we find that the ballot initiative can increase the long-term uh, propensity to vote without actually fostering the building blocks of civic engagement. And even go on later to say initiatives lead to increases in turnout without increasing political interest. That, that to me right there is pretty controversial and is uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that finding? Josh, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take, I'll take this. I actually don't think, and here, here's why I actually think if you want to know why we wrote this book is that I don't think this finding is that controversial if you actually read all the empirical literature. So the empirical literature, if you actually go through and sift through all of the empirical papers and the books that are out there right now, there's this really strong effect, it appears, that especially in the American case data, that ballot initiatives increase turnout and that they especially increase turnout in midterm elections more than in presidential year elections, which means they're pretty good at pulling in those peripheral voters, but maybe not mobilizing new voters, right? So they're good at mobilizing peripheral voters, occasional voters who vote in presidential elections, but not in midterms. Well, maybe you can push them to vote in a midterm. And so you can create this mobilization effect by having a controversial policy issue on the ballot. And so the theory behind what pushes those people to vote, right, is this idea of, in democratic theory, of participatory democracy, which is this notion that if people learn to participate in their democracy, if you challenge them to be better democratic citizens, then you're going to create better democratic citizens. And so you're going to have people who are more informed, more interested, more efficacious. And when you, get all, when you build all of that democratic capital up, then it's going to spill over into participation. Then all of a sudden, those people are going to participate at higher rates. And sort of what Ted and I saw looking at the extant literature, work that we had done and work that other people had done, prior to even writing this book, was that it looked like there was this robust finding for ballot initiatives leading to an increase in turnout, but not leading to these other sort of pre-participatory pieces of civic engagement. So I had written a paper early on that said ballot initiatives decrease trust in government. Ted and I, the first paper that we worked on together, 
said that it decreased, um, or sorry, that there was no effect on political efficacy, even though some early papers had claimed that there was. So there's decreasing trust, no effect on political efficacy. And if you look in some of the early work, the effects on political interests were really, really muted, or there was maybe one survey year out of three or four that had been presented where there was this marginally statistically significant effect. And it just, it seemed to us that this was something that needed to be revisited because it seems like this theory that had been pieced together was wrong. So while this is a, an empirical book and, and you rightly point out that, you know, we've got, you know, we've got a chapter that's all about like, here's how to read all of our complicated empirical models. And then, you know, and then there's three really rich empirical chapters. This is really a book that's about attacking the way that we have looked at how ballot initiatives affect citizens and their views of democracy from a theoretic standpoint, because most of the empirical literature has relied on participatory democratic theory as its base. And we think that the empirical support for that was already poor. So when we get into the empirical chapter on uh, on mobilization and on, on, on participation, we do find again, sure, yeah, ballot initiatives increase participation and that effect is really strong in midterm elections, not so much in presidential year elections, but we really describe it more as a campaign effect. It's a mobilization campaign effect. Well, what's, not, what's happening is, is, is that you're not actually building um, those pre-participatory effects. And so then when we test it on political interest, it's a null effect. You don't really get more political interest. You're just kind of pushing people to bring out those partisan peripheral voters, move them into the electorate, but you're not really getting, you know, sort of better democratic citizens as it were. I agree with you uh, about the uh, bringing that this involves empiricism, but also brings back to theory. Um, I just want to kind of emphasize that real quick. I mean, I saw that strongly within the book. I'm not, I, I can understand the uh, empirical data, but that's not my strong suit nor my background. So, um, you know, to be honest with you, sometimes I kind of see some of the charts and I'm like, oh, this is great. I can get some pages done uh, <laughs> real quick. But, uh, the, uh, but I will say that uh, you guys did a great job of explaining how this relates to the larger picture concept of direct democracy. And I do think we're going to get to all of that. Ted, you had something. I'm sorry. The only thing I'd add to what Josh is, say, is saying is that I don't think we never really, we were always skeptical of these secondary claims, in part because they seemed inconsistent with much of the political psychology literature. Yeah. I mean, it, they, they, there's a whole b b large literature about how people really don't like to be involved in politics. And how that they're skeptical and they don't pay much attention and they find politics distasteful. And then there's the whole notion that every time there's an initiative, there are losers. That may not make them feel any better. That may make them feel worse. Um, so I think it'd be fair to say that from even for work going back to the, um, you know, a decade or so, we were always skeptical of some of these claims. And then it just that there, our empirical work then also supported that. Uh, I went through some of the uh, other articles I'd read on direct democracy before, uh, before today and uh, kind of just looked over some of the uh, 
readings that I've done in the past. One of the articles I thought was interesting. Um, I, I do not know how to pronounce this author's name. It's uh, Libomir uh, Topolov, uh, writing in the Journal of Democracy, wrote a piece called uh, Rise of Referendums, Elite Strategy or Populist Weapon. What was interesting in that uh, article was um, the writer brought up this quote. It was, referendums do not automatically improve the democratic process. Instead, they often function as a substitute for a comprehensive discussion on the merits of vital policy issues. I thought that got to the heart of what you guys are expressing, what you guys are finding in your piece. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, to kind of walk, walk over to another one of those findings, um, you write in, in the book that ballot initiatives tend to amplify partisan sorting. I found this really interesting because I've done some reading um, on, uh, on British politics recently, um, and I found some similarities based on um, the Scottish independence referendum a few years back. Um, some of the studies on that have kind of explained how the Labour Party used to control Scotland, essentially, in terms of um, those were those were Labour Party districts mm. in Scotland. And now it's the uh, Scottish Independence Party pretty much has the support because their support completely collapsed because they decided to oppose Scottish independence. Um, the uh, authors of the British election studies um, they wrote a book called Electoral Shocks. That was one of the electoral shocks that they brought up because it redefined how people thought um, about Labor Party. Now, that's an extreme case. You guys are talking about initiatives and referendums more in the United States where we haven't had such dramatic partisan sorting. But can you tell us a little bit about this finding? Because I found it interesting, the idea that uh, initiatives and just referendums, that they increase not so much, I mean, polarization, but what you guys describe as partisan polarization through partisan sorting. Um, yeah, I, I think the, 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 the notion that sort of part, there was an earlier notion that parties were, were sort of out, uh, were not involved in the initiative process. And that, that finding has been sort of overturned for, for quite a while. But I think what, we don't necessarily find that um, that the initiative process actually changes where like party realignment and and remember, you have to remember too that these are initiatives you know not referendum that are put out by the government that um, so that they're sort of peak elite elite measures but what we do find is that the initiatives t often amplify um, uh, uh, polarization that's already there, right? So, so for example, you you might get, and that they they tend to make a situation so that voters are clear about the connection, what what at least elites see as the connection between particular policies and where they should be as Republicans and Democrats, right? So that the, the message is, oh, if you're a Republican, you need to believe in X type of tax cut, right? Or, 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 or if you're a Democrat, you need to believe in X type of environmental measure. So that that tends to increase sorting and, and, and polarization. We could, we could explain more about the difference if, if you want the fine points. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, I found it interesting. It reminded me a lot of what Ezra Klein talks about his book on polarization. Um, the way that there's two types of, um, of ways that, that people change, um, that partisan, that parties become polarized. One is the idea that people align themselves based on their identity that, Hey, I am a Republican or I am a Democrat. Mm -hmm. So this is what I must believe because I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. And that falls into the idea of Donald Trump being president and a lot of Republicans changing their minds on some major issues over time because they said, well, this must be what it means to be Republican. Uh, the Russia, the feelings on Vladimir Putin in Russia are probably a great example where Republicans were highly antagonistic. And as Trump has softened his views on Russia, Republicans have softened their views on mm -hmm. Russia. Um, but the other way is, is kind of what you guys described too, the partisan sorting, where if a party signals that, hey, I believe this, um, and they can see a clear difference between two different groups, um, and they say, hey, that's not really what I believe. I thought I was a Republican, but maybe I'm really a Democrat. Or I thought I was a Democrat, but maybe I'm really a Republican. That refers to sorting where it's, hey, maybe you're in the wrong, your, your views on issues put you in the wrong group. Right. Um, I kind of saw that your views on ref or your analysis kind of showed that there was more sorting where people realized, hey, maybe I'm in the wrong group. Or, or do you feel that people redefine themselves based on the parties? based on the information you guys saw? It's the latter more than the former. So it's it's more um, people's existing partisan notions um, redefining uh, where they should stand on issues. And so the, the way that we read the data analysis from, uh, from this section of the book is that uh, in this sense, ballot initiatives work as sort of an information mechanism uh, which is that it allows the political parties to say, hey, um, if you didn't know, your view on taxes, if you're a Republican, is that you're always against them. Uh, and so whenever, and the way that we reinforce that is that when there are public votes on taxation and budget measures, there are then public campaigns where Republican elites then reinforce that we shouldn't pass these tax measures. And so then what we see in the electorate is a stronger connection between extant partisanship and issue positions specifically. And we, we, do, we tested in the book on taxation and on environmental issues so that we show that um, those partisan predispositions are more strongly connected to the issue positions in the states that more frequently use the ballot initiative, and so and so that that type of uh, of, of issue, this is mm -hmm. I, I would call it a, a partisan sorting along the lines of Lehman and Carsey's conflict extension, where you start to learn once you have the existing partisan predisposition on the issues that you're unclear about, because we know that the issue space for most voters is really a muddle, and that most people don't think ideologically. And they have really, really muddled issue positions that don't look anything like what we would consider to be sort of well-ordered, reasonable ideological preferences. If you ask the average person who's a Democrat or a Republican a bunch of issue preferences, they're going to give you things that don't align with their political party. Um, and just because they don't know, because the average person doesn't know that much about politics, is not paying very careful attention. 
And so the ballot initiative is actually working as a, as a function here. Now, what's interesting about this for us and why this finding is so critical is, is that this works totally contrary to the way that a lot of initiative advocates say that the initiative is going to work, which is that they say that the initiative is going to break party strangleholds, right? So what they say is, is that you have initiatives and it gives people the ability to offer a more complete preference set that's more nuanced. So when you have partisan elections, you're forcing people into this two-party false dichotomy and people have nuance. And so when you have let them vote on single issues, it allows them to be a conservative on this issue and a liberal on this issue and, you know, and to offer a, a basket of issue preferences, which the two parties don't offer at all. And what our findings show is that it is the Q-type behavior is actually really, really strong. And so that those partisan cues are sort of overwhelming um, the process. And so that parties are actually really using this to their advantage to foster greater levels of polarization. And so as the, part of, as the polarization lament goes on in American politics, it's like, wow, you know, we, we thought we wanted strong parties, but maybe not this strong. Um, we, and we're looking around at institutions that support that. Well, one of the institutions that supports that polarization that parties have figured out they can use to sort of like ramp up their voters and make them more angry, right? And more polarized and more extreme is the ballot initiative process, right? Because it's put same-sex marriage on the ballot, put, put some immigration stuff on the ballot, really get these voters tuned up about issues and, and make them aware of things that the party cares about. And, and kind of, that, oh, just, sorry. Go ahead, Ted. Is to realize, and this is also consistent with some of our other findings, that it's not making people more generally interested in politics. It's not making people more knowledgeable about politics. And that's completely consistent with the notion that it's a Q-type thing. But it is making them know that if I'm a Republican, I should be believing this on this particular initiative. And if I'm a Democrat, I should be believing this. Now, that kind of comes back to what I was saying before about what Ezra Klein was talking about on polarization, what a lot of scholars have talked about on polarization, the idea that um, that issues aren't polarized until they're brought to the forefront of politics and the parties have a chance to say something about it. And then it becomes polarized. And so I guess what you guys are, are saying right off the bat is that the referendum brings the issue to the forefront to give parties the opportunity to polarize the issue itself. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's what that's, you know, when we say what is our theory that's replacing participatory democratic theory, we, we say in the book that ballot initiatives expand the scope of conflict, you know, cri cribbing from Schatzschneider a little bit ballot initiatives expand the scope of conflict that expands partisan warfare that leads to higher turnout and more partisan polarization right but it's all this partisan polarization and partisan mobilization that's going on that's the story it's not like oh i'm a better democratic citizen i learned about civics today i feel so much better about myself and my democracy and because I am filled with this democratic joy bubble inside of me, I am now going to vote. That's not what's going on. I, I study politics frequently, and I'll be honest, I check, the, uh, I check my phone before I go in to vote to see what ballot initiatives on occasion. But um, to, the, the one exception I would bring up, though, is um, looking at 
uh, the idea of electoral shocks from the British election study. I do think, though, that there's a difference between a minor referendum that you're looking for partisan signals as to how to vote and something that strikes at your sense of identity um, that can actually readjust how you think about partisanship potentially. Uh, do you guys think that there's a difference between how salient, how important the issue is for people versus um, a lot of initiatives that are sometimes you're struggling to figure out what exactly it means? I mean, sure. And let's, a good example um, is um, Proposition 187 from California, which we actually led the book with. Um, over, oh, in California, of course, there's a increase, there's a, a vastly increased Latino population and Latinos have become um, more democratic over time, but it was more, much more pronounced after 187. And by the way, actually Asian Americans too, because that initiative was seen as an attack on immigrants and immigrant rights and a disproportionate number of Latinos and Asian Americans are immigrants. Um, so over time, it did, there's a good deal of evidence to suggest it furthered that move towards the Democratic Party and furthered the, um, the tendency to, towards California becoming a Democratic state. You know, I mean, one of the things, Justin, you're enough younger than I am that you might, I mean, I remember when California was, you know, was a, was a very competitive state and it actually mostly went Republican in the, in the national election. Um, and it wasn't that long, enough, long, long ago, uh, but, but of course there's two, but, but that, and this is somewhat controversial still about exactly how much impact, but there, there's no question that if anything, that proposition moved Latinos and Asian Americans further to the Democrat and further the advancement of California being a democratic state. Yeah, I, I think Ted um, uh, hits on, that's a great example, 187 is a great example, and, and I think that it, 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 it gets at a, a big core of what we're talking about in the book. There is some other research too that's out there on salience, initiative salience, um, that that um, that talks about this. And I, I think this is really important because if you look at the stuff that's on salience, so Dan Biggers has this book where he's basically arguing that all of the turnout effects have to do with essentially salient initiatives. So it's really just a couple initiatives. And he, he argues that it's mostly those that fall into the easy issue domain, particularly like moral values initiatives, that values-based initiatives that drive the, the people to pay attention to initiatives. And those are mostly the ones that generate um, turnout effects. That, there's also this uh, recent paper by, um, 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 by uh, a couple scholars about uh, Barth et al. about um, uh, whether or not people are actually aware of which initiatives are on their ballot. And, and by and large, initiative awareness is terrible. Like uh, initiative recall and initiative awareness uh, among 
voters is terrible. And I think that this goes to the bigger's point and this goes to the point that Ted was just making, which is that there really only are a couple of these measures that make that, that sort of have this breakthrough impact and have this potential to really sort of, you know, your, your prop eights, your prop 187s, right? The, the, the ones that really, really, the prop 209s, the, the ones that really seem to capture a lot of people. The other thing is though, is that even when you have a salient initiative, and I think that this maybe is something that where I would distinguish the referendum voting, particularly the large scale institutional referendum voting that goes on um, in a lot of the European countries. Like, you know, you brought up Brexit. Like Brexit is about a fundamental um, uh, change that's going to affect everyone in the country, right? Prop 187 is, is a, is a, is a a targeted measure which attacks a minority group. And so the actual like particularized benefits in that initiative are to a small, not a small, a large minority group, but there's still a minority group when they, when that is on the ballot uh, in 94. And so when we think about, you know, those types of initiatives that have garnered a lot of salience, you know, maybe the tax cut measures you can put into the into the realm of ones that are going to affect everybody. Um, but the ones that, by and large, a lot of those measures, even the ones that have become the most salient, you're talking about rights initiatives that even then are affecting a minority of the population. So they have to be distinguished from sort of these referendum questions, which are like, you know, large scale directional changes for you know, the country, maybe the closest corollary you have to those is when you do major institutional reform, you know, maybe term limits. Um, but even well, then, it's like that's going to change everything for everybody tomorrow. Well, Switzerland, for instance, had to, to allow women to vote. They had to put it to referendum. And I think that that is an example that speaks to exactly what you were talking about. And to speak to minority, minorities being targeted, uh, women weren't allowed to vote in Switzerland until 1972, which when I first learned about that, um, it really stunned me. It, uh, it caught me completely off guard because I would have thought that the right to vote for women in a Western country would have been taken care of a lot longer than that. In fact, there's um, a few cantons in Switzerland, which um, it didn't get, weren't allowed to, women weren't allowed to vote on, on local issues until I think it was 1990. And that came down to what you guys mentioned actually in the book, which is it came down to a lawsuit to allow that to happen because hmm. the, the men weren't going to allow that to happen. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's interesting to me that uh, that kind of comes back to what you guys mentioned is that a lot of times minorities are targeted or um, held back through initiatives. Now, in that case, it was a referendum rather than an initiative petition, but it comes back to the same idea that um, direct democracy doesn't necessarily elevate minority rights. So, yeah. Um, I'd like to get to the third key finding that I saw, and, and that was regarding something you already touched on, which was uh, political trust within the, uh, within the system. Um, 
here, I've got a quote, the initiative route has disproportionate appeal to individuals and groups hostile to the representative process because of their extreme views, um, aversion to compromise, and or prior failure in the legislative arena. Can you give us some examples where this has been problematic? Um, Josh, maybe you want to say a little more about the whole uh, Washington experience with taxes, um, because that's such a or the Colorado experience with abortion. Yeah, I, let, let me start with with uh, with Washington State. Um, uh, I, I think that I I love telling people about Tim Iman, who's now running for governor in uh, in Washington State. He he eventually decided, but Tim Iman is Washington State's initiative entrepreneur, and that that is he described himself as you know we have a quote in the book about how you know initiatives are work his hammer. And so, you know, everything he, he decides he wants to hit it with an initiative. And, and, um, but Iman was, was very much in this view of nothing can come through the legislative process, right? Nothing can come through the legislative process because the legislative process will just come undone. And sort of our, our view on this is, is, is what, what is a, who, who, who is attracted to the initiative route? Because it's, it's kind of a, it's not a great route to take your legislative bill through, right? Um, you have to spend a bunch of money to qualify your measure, to put it on, uh, to, to get this measure put to the voters. And then it's a one shot up or down. And if it fails, then it fails and it's done. And you just lost all that money that you spent on the campaign, on the signature gathering campaign, on, on all parts of it to get it that far. And you know, you, maybe you just flushed all that money down the toilet. And so why would you do that when you, know, you could have spent the opportunity cost of that money is spending that money on a lobbyist or you, know, you could take, take meetings with legislatures well, you have to fundamentally believe that there's something wrong with the legislature, that the legislative process itself, which the American legislative process is built around this idea of checks and balances and separation of powers and compromise, right? I mean, even when you have unified government, you often end up with these compromised legislative bills. And in state legislatures, you often end up with, you know, uh, the bills that pass often pass with, you know, large majorities of support because they've been brought through a committee structure and they've had a lot of hands in them. And so when you think about who is on the outside of that process, who doesn't want to participate in it, well, Tim Iman was one of these guys in Washington state. His view was that, you know, this legislature doesn't do anything good and everything I want to do is shrink the size of government and cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes. And so he kept putting these bills forward to, to try to cut taxes. And his most famous or his most successful effort was the $30 car cab initiative where Washington state had, you know, no, no income tax in, in the state. They had a, a, a sales tax that's relatively high and then a number of high excise taxes to pay for things like transportation. And so the car vehicle excise taxes were relatively high. In many cases, a new car would have a vehicle excise tax of over $500. Um, Per year. And so he passed, he put an initiative together that was um, uh, 
I want to pass. It was $30 car tabs. And then he put on there and all new measures, all new tax measures require voter approval. <laughs> and so, and the $30 car tabs on there, bam, voters got latched onto that because people started seeing it as essentially they were going to get, a lot of people were going to get a $500 a year tax cut. And, um, and so he, he was able to push this $30 car tab measure through uh, in Washington. And, uh, and then the courts came through and the courts threw it out because it violated the single subject rule. And it created this, this roundabout thing. And, it, and, you know, eventually the legislature did pass $30 car tabs, but then they found a way to put other excise taxes back in. And, and I, I just think to myself, you know, what, what was it that attracted him to this is that it was the ideological purity of there was only one way to do this is, and so we, we, we give some examples of that. There's this example of the Colorado abortions that Ted brings up as well in the book where they, where they kept trying to pass the same bill a new version of the same bill to, you know, basically make abortion illegal in the state of Colorado to create a test challenge for Roe v. Wade, and it kept failing. And so then they did it again, and 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 so we 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 see these examples uh, of people doing this. One of the things that you brought up, Justin, is is that this does in a way relate to the finding later in the book where we show that trust goes down because of the usage of the ballot initiative process. And part of the reason that we think that that occurs is um, that, you know, people, when you vote on lots of initiatives and people are constantly reminded that if you're voting on things to change the way that government works, even if they're not passing and nothing is changing and there are court challenges, or if you put up a slate of eight measures like they did in the, what is the 2005 California special election, there was a special election with eight initiatives and all eight of them failed. But when you have a special election with eight initiatives, what's the purpose of that election? It's to fix something that government is doing wrong. So the presence of those initiatives brings into question the efficacy, the effectiveness of, um, of your state government, of your legislature. And so it, the usage of the initiative process, the proposing of initiatives, not the passing, right? Just the proposing, the putting them on the, on the ballot uh, sort of undermines the, the trust and confidence that people have uh, in the legislative process. It's like the, the usage of the institution, the turning of the crank tells people that this is the way that we operate government and we do this because if we don't do this, then the government's not going to work well. And it was interesting, just, we actually went back and looked at some of the um, recent, say, California ballot pamphlets. And it is striking how often those pamphlets, the initiative processes talk, literally in the pamphlet, the language is about the failure of the legislature. You know, the, the, they haven't done this, they haven't done that. And so that, so it's, consistent with Josh is saying, it reinforces this message that we're only going here because the legislature has failed. But of course, it's disproportionately used by people who aren't very sympathetic to the legislative process. The, the, the thing that I struggle with on that argument, though, is that it feels a little bit chicken in the egg. Is Was it 
are people making that case because the political culture in the United States is distrustful. And so it becomes salient and maybe that's why initiatives exist or is it people use that argument and it produces, it makes people feel more distrustful is, is the referendum causing the distrust or is it a reflection of the distrust? This is why it's great as an empiricist, right? To have, (laughs) uh, to have 50 states, to have 26 of them have the institution of the initiative and 24 of them don't. And then the 26 that have it, use it in varying frequency. And the 26 that have it, almost all of them adopted it 100 years ago. So if you're worried about like there's some adoption endogeneity problem, like, oh, it's because of California's distrusting political culture that they have it and New York doesn't. Well, is California the same state that, like, is there something endogenous to California's distrust about why they adopted it, right, it, <laughs> over 100 years ago that, that still has lingered to the political culture of today, even though that state is completely transformed, right, from, from in terms of the number of people who live there, in terms of the demographics of the population who live there, that state doesn't look anything like it did a hundred years ago, right? Like nothing. And so this, this like over, so the, the, the notion that there's like this over time endogeneity to Californianness, I, I think is, it's, it's kind of, I, I, don't, I don't put a lot of stock in that argument. And the truth is, is, is that what we're relying on here is the 50 state comparison. And so what we know is that states that don't have the initiative trust their state legislatures more, right? And, and that, that's kind of weird because you often associate like, you know, I mean, you, you often associate like corrupt legislatures with places, you know, back east that don't have the initiative process, right? Like, you know, I, I lived in New York for six years and, you know, I would not say that that, that state legislature is like, you know, the, the uh, cornerstone of like, you know, well-functioning uh, democracy, right? There are lots of problems, lots of people getting arrested, lots of, lots of issues, lots of backroom deals. Um, and I'm sure that, and lots of language in the public about distrusting government, but the models show what the models show, which is that distrusting government is higher in places where you frequently use the ballot initiative. And so, so, I mean, I, I kind of just rely on the data there, unless there is something just fundamentally different about what happened a hundred years ago to adopt those things, right? That's that chicken and egg or endogeneity thing. And if the institutions had been adopted 20 or 30 years ago, I think you could put more stock in that argument. But because the ballot initiative um, sort of movement towards developing these institutions really came 100 years ago, you really only have three states that adopted the initiative process um, um, really later in the two in 1990s, one in 1970, Florida in 1972, and then you have two that barely use it that adopted it in the 90s, Illinois and Mississippi. And then everybody else is, is you know, pre-World War II largely. I find that interesting because it kind of comes back to the idea of whether institutions 
bring about certain political cultures or whether or not political cultures foster those institute foster those type of institutions. Um, it's also interesting because it runs counter to some of what Robert Putnam and, and Francis Fukuyama talk about. Fukuyama in his book literally called Trust. Um, Putnam and some of his other work. I don't know. That's 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 fascinating, and I love the fact that you guys are able to introduce some empirical data to back up exactly what you guys are talking about in terms of the initiative. Um, I want to pop over to the big picture takeaway that I got from the book, and your words again, and I think this is from the conclusion or close to it. You mentioned that ballot initiatives increase the scope of conflict. It creates more opportunity and incentive for political mobilization and discord. Kind of comes back to the idea um, of polarization and everything else. Um, not so much that creates the polarization, but it creates opportunity for those conflicts. Um, can you can you kind of inform us? Is your ultimate conclusion then going to be that that ballot initiatives are bad policy that we should be kind of taken away? And this we probably both want to talk about um, is we have probably fairly similar views, but but maybe not exact. Um, it, they, I think what we're saying is that there there are all empirically a lot of the claims that are made about the benefits of direct democracy, particularly the ballot initiative, the direct initiative, are not sustained. And then you look at the theory about it, how it really works to, um, and not to, not to make people feel engaged, but to drive polarization, that's worrisome. And then I would say beyond that, it's used, it's, it's too often used as a tool for somewhat, sometimes some marginal ma ma majorities to harm the rights of, of minorities. And then even a step further, Justin, it's, it's not a process that's conducive to careful prioritizing or making choices, that the, the representative process is just better at that. Because the, what you have with the initiative process is you have a bunch of decisions made individually, not put together, right? Not part, some part of some large picture structure not as a set of priorities. And where there's only one choice, up or down. For the legislature, for all its flaws, for all their flaws, do a better job of putting issues together so that people can, is this a higher priority or that? They're better at reflecting intense views of minorities. Um, and um, they can compromise. Uh, you know, bills that are introduced in legislatures are rarely the same bills that they come out with. Some people, lots of, Tim Einman and Josh would say, would suggest that's a bad thing. I tend to think that's generally a good thing. It assumes that there's not one perfect answer. But, you know, once an initiative goes on the ballot, you have to vote on that. So for all those reasons, I'm, I'm a skeptic about the, the, at least the American ballot initiative process. I'm, less skeptical about the recall. I'm less skeptical about referenda, you know, that are put on by, um, you know, or, or sending constitutional amendments through the legislature to a vote of the people. But yes, I'm, I'm tend to be pretty skeptical about the 
ballot initiative process. Again, as done in the American states, that wouldn't necessarily apply to every mechanism of de direct democracy across the world. Yeah, I mean, our, I, if the question was, are these bad policy, 100%. Um, that, and I would say that this is, this is a bad policy process to, to steal language from you know, the, the public administration or policy literature. It, th this is not a good policy process because even if you take, even if you took a lot of the reasons that Ted brought up are reasons why I think this is problematic, right? But let me add two additional ones. Uh, one, Ted brought up earlier, which is, is that there's quite a bit of research. I, I think the best on this is from uh, Hibbing and Tice Morse, their, their book, Stealth Democracy, where they talk about what people actually want out of democracy. And they, they do a great job talking about how people don't actually want to be more involved in their democracy. They take on greater engagement in democracy because they think that there's some sort of legislative failure going on. Right. So they, but they don't actually desire greater involvement. Their ideal is to be governed by, you know, some sort of really um, uh, empathetic and uncorruptible bureaucrat. That, that's like the public ideal, which, which, you know, you have to think about for a second, like <laughs> public preferences for that. But, but people don't love the idea of voting on these things. If you ask them about if they're confused by initiatives, if they understand them, they will often say no. There are tons of concerns about majority tyranny, et cetera. But even if you have an initiative process that you think is working well, it's delivering majoritarian policy that's responsive to the wishes of the public, that you don't have concerns about selective electorates, right? Where you know, you have an off-year election with lower turnout and someone is strategically placed to measure and so they're getting a preferred outcome. Let's say that you actually think you're bringing policy closer to the median voter and that you're doing it in a way that is actually making for good government. The example people bring up all the time are institutional reforms. So, you know, if, if we're, we're getting ranked choice voting in Maine right now and people are like, well, you know, you never get that policy change without, uh, without, you know, direct democracy. The problem with the policy process problem with direct democracy is, is that it still lacks an advocate. So even if you pass a policy, you, the policy process doesn't end when the legislature finishes something. You still have to get it, through the, it, it still has to be implemented through the bureaucracy. There may be court challenges or issues that come up. And there's no single person who acts on behalf of the public then to implement the policy. Whereas if you had a bill sponsor that was behind this from the beginning, then, you know, great. So I, I, I'm a believer in democracy and I'm a believer in more responsive elections. But I, I think that ballot initiatives are, are actually, they undermine legislatures. That's what the trust finding shows, right? They undermine legislatures. They don't strengthen the representative democratic process. And then they create these mandates that go into effect. And then sometimes those mandates aren't even followed or followed through on. And those mandates can sometimes lead to a situation where you're sowing seeds of conflict. So we talked a bit about Prop 187 before. The Prop 187 example is like the key example for this book because 
it's an example where proponents actually were pretty level-headed, if you do reading on this, that their initiative was going to be ruled unconstitutional, right? That they were going to pass this big thing where, you know, children of immigrant, of undocumented immigrants weren't going to be able to get state services. And it was a total violation of the 14th Amendment. And everybody knew it ahead of times. And the courts... That has some serious issues, too, when you think about creating distrust in government, because now people go out there, they make a statement, they have, they, they think, hey, I just expressed my opinion, but now the courts undermine exactly what I wanted. And they did it on purpose, like that proponents did it on purpose, knowing, knowing that they were going to be ruled unconstitutional to sow that anger, Right. That is not a well-functioning democratic system. That's creating lots of problems. And so to me, this is, this is a, a, a policy process cluster. Like I, I, I don't see any way that this ballot initiative process is, is really working well when it lacks advocates, when people are, are, are trying to push forward initiatives to create and sow seeds of conflict through the partisan system. And I mean, yeah, we have lots of polarization that exists and, you know, there's lots of other problems in the, in, in the legislative system. But I, I think that there are ways to promote a healthier representative democratic system. And there are lots of ways, our book suggests there are lots of ways that the ballot initiative process is undermining it. I thought that was really interesting, the way you talked about not having an advocate within the system. And I, I I didn't feel like that was emphasized as much in the book, probably because you were emphasizing more the impact on political culture itself, I would say. Um, but I think that that puts together one of the other things you mentioned, which was how often ballot initiatives are struck down by the courts, uh, which caught me by complete surprise, although makes complete sense that if you have somebody who doesn't know the law very well, being able to write up an initiative and put it to the vote, that it's possible that it doesn't actually meet constitutional muster um, or violates. I'll just say that um, years ago, I think this may have even been before I knew Josh, I was on, I think, the local um, 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 uh, radio station in Sacramento, and somebody came on and asked me, well, essentially, isn't it terrible that... um, so many initiatives are struck down. And I, <laughs> it, it reflects that they're, they're badly written. Um, and this is, and both because they're sometimes cynical, as Josh has, was mentioning, and even if they're not completely cynical, they don't have to go through a process. I mean, you think about every bill that the, goes through the California legislature is written up by ledge council. There is an they can, lawyers are writing the initiative, then they go through a bunch of committees and and people with law degrees and stuff check about the the language and committee consultants write about the language, et cetera. It's not accidental that that this happens. And and we, we fairly doubt that, you know, it probably does have some effect on, on voter, but, you know, voters aren't paying, they maybe at the moment it does. It prob- probably, um, you know, they're not paying that close attention. But It does if politicians bring it up, though. Yes, the politicians, and it's part of the message then that, you know, that 
people are eroding the, the uh, initiative process and the legislature or the, whoever is playing games, if, the if, if say legislators bring a suit or something against it. Um, but again, the fundamental problem is, you know, you could write up an initiative. And if you, you could write up an initiative, Justin, if you could get, if you have a million or two, a couple million dollars, you could send it down somebody here and could send it to the Secretary of State. And if there are enough signatures that it gets on the ballot, and then people vote on it. That's another good point, too, that it costs a lot of money to be able to get an initiative on the ballot. So rather than being necessarily brought from the bottom up necessarily, it's oftentimes um, encouraging people who have a lot of money. Like you mentioned in the book, you brought up a good example of somebody who brought up a reform to insurance that literally was designed just to help his own company. Right. Um, and that's, that's something yeah. that it really kind of caught me by surprise. I thought that was. Yeah. And, and again, I'm, there are people who are less, there are scholars out there who are more favorable to the initiative process that we are. And they would point out that, oh, that with the voters figure out that a, a, a special interest is behind a particular initiative, it's pretty, very likely to lose. And I would agree and with this that. one did. Yeah. And this one did actually it lost multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is that they can roll the dice. If you have enough money, it's not that you'll win all the time or that you'll do, but that you, you can roll the dice because you can do the signature gathering thing. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting from your response, Ted, earlier, um, and we probably got to go back a little ways to get back to it, but you mentioned how initiatives are up or down votes. It, it doesn't give you the opportunity to be able to compromise, to be able to make reforms to it before it goes in, take different people's in input into account. And I, I think that's a really important part of democracy that people miss when they focus exclusively on the idea of direct democracy, that people need to have a say and a say literally through elections as opposed to um, more responsive government within legislatures or other forms. Brexit is something that, I, that I've thought a lot about, a lot of people have thought a lot about that focus on international. And I think of that, even though that was a referendum, it's not an initiative, but it comes back to the idea that people had a vote that was up or down on an issue that was extraordinarily complex. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they didn't take into account all of the secondary impacts that would be involved until afterwards. But once you've made the commitment politicians have a hard time backing down on it because now they feel, Hey, we've already decided we're going to do this. Now we got to figure out a way to create the policy to actually go with what the people said, as opposed to if people would have known, Hey, maybe Scotland's going to pull out of the United Kingdom. Maybe I don't want to support that if that's the case, but if they don't, Hey, I'll, I'll vote for it. Um, the different types of Brexit, a hard Brexit versus soft Brexit would have changed people's mind as to how they approach their vote. Um, I imagine that that comes in a lot on initiatives where even though it's, it might be a specific policy, I would imagine that the lack of clarity in some of the proposals makes it difficult for people to make decisions. But, and actually, it's interesting you should mention Brexit because what your points you're making, Justin, are exactly the things that were worrying me at the time. And then you can imagine people who who, if you had given them more choices, 
if they'd, you'd given them a Brexit option that say, say, um, you know, was going to guarantee that somehow that, that, that there wasn't going to be a hard border at, or, uh, at, in Ireland or various other sorts of things, maybe they would have voted for that. But then you actually create this difficult position that people maybe who were somewhat sympathetic to Brexit, they either had to vote, they only had two choices, right? Um, and that's, even if you assume goodwill, that creates a, a, a problem. And, and it's two choices that make it difficult for people to understand all of the negotiating that goes behind it. And uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to think in terms of Brexit. Now, again, that's a referendum. I thought it was interesting looking at, I, I'm sure you guys as, as United States scholars might not have read it, but David Cameron in his book goes into both Brexit and the Scottish referendum. I thought it was interesting that he used those referendums based on his own account that essentially was putting the vote to the people but it was almost to take things off the table so that they wouldn't need to actually debate them in the legislature anymore. Like, hey, we'll put this to the vote for the people on Scottish independence. And when they vote no, we can tell Scotland, hey, we already decided that for a long time. Uh, they're going to put Brexit to a vote. And his hope was that they would vote to stay in the European Union, but it would eliminate the debate. Mm -hmm. from hardliners saying, hey, we need to exit by saying, hey, we already voted on it. People said this. Do you guys ever notice that the initiatives are sometimes used uh, to circumvent the legislature so that decisions are made to kind of obligate um, public policy in a way, even sometimes to purposely lose an initiative so that uh, legislators have a hard time bringing it up to debate and consideration in the legislature going forward? You know, the, the thing about that is, is that I, I think that the, I, I've heard this notion a lot that there, there's this notion that there, that you'll punt an issue, right? That legislators can use this punt, this, the, the referendum process, the idea of referring it to the public vote to like punt and settle. And, and there's just the salient issues that take place in the American states because we don't have the national referendum and so we don't deal with like questions of national importance that way. And even at the state level, the number of important sort of, well, and, and this is where the terminology gets tricky because what we call referendums in the states aren't actually referendums as they call them in Europe and across the nation. They're actually veto referendums. So a popular referendum in the U.S. is actually meant to veto a law already passed by the legislature. So what I would call a constitute a referred constitutional amendment or something like that, right? A process that they actually have in 49 of 50 states where you can give something to, to ratify. Um, those are like, most of the time, those are rubber stamps and it's not used as this process to actually punt it to the public. And so you do get, you know, major policy questions that do end up in the initiative space that the legislatures haven't dealt with. So one example of this is, is marijuana policy has largely been decided in via initiative in the last decade and legislatures haven't really done anything about it. And so the interest groups around, um, you know, legalization of, you know, legal weed have, have actually been quite successful in pushing those policies. Um, 
in in the states and and in some cases you know like when when we had it in Massachusetts it was like every single public official in the state right the liberal state came out against it you know the the democratic attorney general the chief of police of Boston the governor everybody was like please don't pass this and then it passed with like 65% of the vote they're like screw you so you know and and maybe that's a case where you know the they that was their version of punting like we don't want to be the ones that pass you know legal weed and then you know it took them forever to implement it and and they did it but i i really think that in 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 the way that we understand that the initiative process works because it really really depends if you're comparing initiatives versus referendums who the agenda setter is because the agenda setters are, are outsiders of the political process by and large, the standard route is, is that you're getting a wealthy extremist, right? We just talked about money a minute ago. So it's like, you know, and Ted was like, you know, you, Justin, you could pass an initiative and, you know, but I don't know, maybe you're independently wealthy. I can't <laughs> pass an initiative. Not like, quite. I, you know, not, not on my, you know, I mean, not on my, yeah, you, you may, your, your podcast is so successful, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get millions of hits after this. Our book sales are gonna go through the roof. Um, but no, I I um, I, I just you know it, it takes a lot of money to qualify an initiative, and so it's basically ideological wealthy extremists who are setting the agenda. And so in a referendum, it's government. It's government is deciding in, in these like national referendum campaigns. They're like, there's this really important question that, that's come up. And, and I actually can see the value of that, right? In something like Brexit. Although like Brexit is like also such a great example of the fact that it was so close to passing and the nuance of it could have shifted the vote. And if you'd held Brexit, 10 times, you could have gotten 10 different results. Or if you changed the question wording 10 times, you could have gotten 10 different results. To be clear, I'm not opposed to the idea of a referendum on on Britain being in the European Union. And I fully understand on reading a lot about the European Union and Britain's role within it, why they would have um, voted to leave. That, That doesn't shock me. What what I think was the problem was that they made it such a philosophical, like a broad issue, instead of having something that was more concrete saying, hey, we got us to this point. Do we want to stay in or do we want to go out? This is literally exactly what we're talking about. And it was the lack of specificity that I think made it difficult, which comes back to what you guys said, is that because a lot of initiatives are very specific, a lot of them fail, you know? Because it's easier to come up with reasons to vote against something than to vote for it. And Josh may even be surprised here since I'm, off, I'm so often critical. <laughs> uh, but in, during the, um, at the end of the Great Recession, you'll remember that, that it really hit states later. Um, and when Jerry Brown was governor, he put a major tax pass package to the people. Um, that included um, sales tax and income tax increases. And in many ways, I think that was a good thing. It did create legitimacy for it at a crucial time. But my point there would be that's the rarity. The specifics had been carefully worked out by leaders. It was really an elite-driven thing. 
it was really seen as a referendum on sort of what do we need to do to pull California out. And for every one of those, there's all these extremist measures or self-interested measures or poorly thought out measures, et cetera. Now, I think it's important to emphasize real quick why ballot initiatives cost so much money. And I actually have a background um, in third party politics. Um, not, I, I'm not behind it anymore, but I, I've done some work in that. My father was big in, uh, was not big, but he was involved in the Libertarian Party. So I've known people that have been paid petitioners, and I understand how expensive and involved it is to get something onto the ballot because libertarians were constantly fighting ballot um, access laws to be able to get on the ballot. And you've got a time frame to be able to get signatures done. And the moment you start paying for petitioners, even if they're extraordinarily supportive of your cause, you find that the number of valid signatures um, goes down dramatically. And so you, you're paying for, peti- for signatures and you're paying for bad signatures oftentimes along with those. Um, and so the, uh, the cost of initiatives, I, I, I imagine, is similar where it's extraordinarily expensive, takes a lot of fundraising. And if you don't have a wealthy backer or an incredibly large organization behind you, I would, I would imagine it's difficult to get something on the ballot in most states. Yeah. Um, Ted, we have estimates, right? In chapter- yeah, we actually, in the book, we estimate what the signature, and it, it's sometimes several dollars per signature. Yes. Yeah. And so you're talking about easily a um, million dollar, you know, a million, a couple million dollars to, to get things on the ballot in many states. In fact, that um, Du Bois, uh, Josh has mentioned a number of books. One of the other nice books is a book by Du Bois and Feeney several years ago that was a look at across the states. And they talked about how the cynical, <laughs> the cynical solution for, for signature gathering was just give a million dollars and then you get something on the ballot. <laughs> and, and their arguments are completely right still today, except that it wouldn't be a million dollars. It would be much more than that. So you, you, know, you can't get enough signatures if you don't have paid signature gathers, they're, they're paid by the signature. It's, it's hard, you know, it takes a huge amount of effort to get them. Um, well, then- to, to be fair, some things are easier to get on the ballot than others. I, I remember, I usually, um, it's not uncommon that if I see something, like I, I look at it before I, I put my signature to it and uh, Tulsi Gabbard, um, I was approached by somebody asking to put Tulsi Gabbard on the ballot. And uh, I, I did walk past the person. I did not, <laughs> I did not choose to, to put my signature behind that. But um, no, I mean, uh, you're right though. Like uh, it does cost a lot to get something on the ballot. And I would imagine it probably costs more to put an unpopular issue, even though a lot of people will allow people to put something to the vote, even if they disagree with it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I want to kind of wrap up with um, a question that might take us some time, but I want to make sure that we kind of touch on it. Um, one of the things that always, in terms of institutions, when we talk about an institution, something that that changes the way that we relate uh, to politics or society, it's it's difficult because 
the question is how much of an impact is it because of the institution itself versus how much of an impact in terms of the culture? Do either of you believe that if that in the presence of different types of political culture where people were maybe uh, more informed or you had different different types of um, political systems, like maybe we had multi-party democracy instead of a two-party system. Do you think anything like that would have an impact in terms of how initiatives would actually function? Um, Do you think that um, the political culture itself has an impact, or do you think that initiatives just by their nature create these secondary effects? Sure, why don't I, do you want to mind if I take a crack at that? Yeah, okay. So I, I think that, um, I think I would answer this in two ways. I think the, the place I would start is, is I, again, I would go to what is our theory and then what sort of flows out from our theory, right? So what, 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 do, we, what do we come at logically from our theory? Our theory says that ideological initiative entrepreneurs um, approach the American political system uh, with some disdain. Um, they look at what's going to happen in the American legislative process, right? In the state legislatures, they say, I don't want any part of that. Why don't they want any part of that? Well, the American political process institutionalizes gridlock as separation of powers, checks and balances, etc. And so the output of that type of political process is going to be political compromise. So, um, that would lead our initiative entrepreneurs to say, no, thank you. I would prefer to spend my, you know, I have lots of money. I'm going to spend my money on this one shot opportunity to pass this much more extreme version of reality, right? Where I'm going to, you know, try to get $30 car tabs and make it so that the, you know, the, we can't ever pass another, uh, a tax bill without voter approval, right? Let's try to do that. Um, let's, let's pass something that fits my ideological purity rather than something that fits the sort of gridlock compromise model of the American political system. If there are other political systems that supported a different type of political outcome, I think that, you know, it's possible that the system would work differently. The other main complaint that Ted and I have within this process is that, um, you know, um, racial, ethnic, sexual minorities are treated very badly. Um, they, they are, they tend to be attacked with initiatives. We don't see pro civil rights initiatives. We see, we see initiatives that attack advances in civil rights. So we almost never see the advancement of civil rights. The, the, the examples that we can give are few and far between. Um, <clears throat> Ted can give you the example that, you know, that, you know, there's, we have one instance in the book, right, where we looked at the history of California and found one example where. Um, well, uh, let's, in terms of that, um, I agree with you that that's, that's where the data is showing. The only thing that makes me, that gives me cause to pause in terms of that idea is um, Robert Dahl has a, has a famous book from 1956 uh, before his most famous book, Polyarchy. He wrote a book called um, Preface to Democratic Theory. 
It's one written, of my favorites. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's written like I think it's in '56, so it's two years after Board versus uh, Brown versus Board of Education. In it, he emphasizes how everybody acts like the courts are a place to defend civil liberties, but but he notes that there's very very few civil rights cases that had actually defended civil liberties. Most of the civil rights cases up to that point, outside of Brown versus. Uh, Board of Education had actually taken away civil liberties from uh, from minorities, especially African Americans, um, and emphasized the idea that hey, if we actually put things to a majority in the country, especially during Reconstruction, we would have actually been in a better position. Um, you'd have that Madisonian sense that hey, um, we'd be looking at things on a broader perspective, and you'd totally. actually have a majority supporting that idea. Um, you know, provided that everybody actually had a right to vote. Um, but since then, since that book, we saw a string of civil rights cases that redefined how we thought about it, that mm -hmm. supported um, minority rights, African Americans gained significant uh, civil rights through the Supreme Court. Um, and the, the, the way we thought about the court, I think, completely changed because of that. It, it undercut Dahl's point. But what I'm getting at is is it possible that the moment in history like the the little snapshot that we're looking at may show that there was that the courts are a better defense um, or even legis legislatures are a better defense today but maybe the reverse would be true tomorrow well one thing i would say about i mean again i think Dahl was a brilliant scholar and, and of course in ways but i think we now have decades of experience on this and and it's not just courts legislatures do a better job of pr pr protecting minority rights and that that's one of those things that maybe the american public needs to hear more legislatures for all the times that they you know did restrictive zoning laws and um all kinds of things but the question is always compared to what and led and I mean probably the most the most notable example of this actually is on gay rights. So you see initiative after initiative that are aimed at restricting gay rights and restricting gay marriage and things of that sort, right? That was a that was a real aha moment for me, yeah, by the way. Legislatures pass pass bills to um, even before gay marriage to protect uh, rights in the workplace and to protect other sorts of rights. And why? Because, because people go to them. Very people, uh, LB, LGBT groups go to them and express their concerns and they testify and they do all those sorts of things and they feel very strongly about it, right? And for all their problems, Again, it's compared to what legislatures do better on those things. Um, you know, we quoted, so this isn't, we quoted um, a piece, Justin, from, from my advisor, Ray Wolfinger at Berkeley. And he, Ray and another prominent, had done a piece on the California Fair Housing Act, which I think I quoted in, we quoted in there. And they talk, so, so California passes a strong fair housing bill, and the next year, there's an initiative passed to overturn it. 
and, so, and what's the difference? And, and what Ray and his colleague were saying, you know, people, um, you know, African-American activists were sort of chaining themselves to, um, to desks or something in the Capitol. And they, they were visible and they were there, right? You know, you, so you can, you can do, and, and another sort of comparable example, Justin, when you looked at, this is outside our book, so I'm going to, who, pa when, in 1982, the Congress passed redress for Japanese Americans yeah, um, interned during World War II. At that moment, public opinion polls were still not necessarily showing a clear majority of the American people supporting that. So at a time, and what's the, there were, there were members of Congress who had been there, you know, there, there was all that sort of thing. And for, again, for all the failures of legislatures, and they passed terrible laws over the years, the question is compared to what? It, that, to back up what you're saying about political legislatures, there was a book I reviewed recently for my blog um, called Foot Soldiers about political party membership. And it was by Tim Bale et al. And they pointed out that people who are um, members of political parties, like actual members that are involved in the process, are actually more socially liberal than the general public who just vote for those parties. And that was true across the board. Even in the UKIP, it was mainly on Britain, British political parties. Even in the UKIP, if you were a member of the party, you had a little bit more socially liberal views than the voters of the UKIP, UK. Um, true for labor, true for the conservatives. It was really interesting. So to back up your point, the data, again, this was a very database book. The data has shown that political party membership and political party, like being a legislator, oftentimes you're a little bit more empathetic to minority rights than the and general you, voter. And you get the intense people coming to you and the groups coming to you, and there's an incentive often to grow your base, to, to reach out to new groups who can be part of your base for the future. For all those reasons, I think it makes a difference. And, and so to, I, I just wanna loop this conversation, which is, is great, and I, I think, Ted, you nailed it with, with the points that you brought up there. I wanna loop this back to Justin's question, which is that, you know, do you feel that there's something about different political cultures or different political institutions, um, which is going to, where direct democracy might work, right? Is it, is the, is it specific to this one? Um, where, you know, our, 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 is our book US dependent? Um, I, I'm not sure, but I do know the fact that we have, the fact that we have a very, um, uh, racially and ethnically diverse society and that race and ethnicity is a core part of the American story, right? Um, that I think creates a lot of the uh, dividing lines. Uh, religiosity has as well with attacks on, on LGBTQ Americans and that whole same-sex marriage movement. Uh, I, I think we also see that through uh, various war, uh, versions of initiatives uh, that uh, talk about 
uh, abortion and abortion rights. Um, if our society was more homogeneous, right, the Swiss cantons are more homogeneous than the American states are. So would we have better effects? I have, I have one paper where I show that, you know, social trust effects are more positive in states that have less um, racial diversity. And presumably that's because there's less of that sort of attack driven ballot initiative policy going on. And so it's possible that, you know, in, in a less diverse society where, where, you know, you, you aren't gonna, you, you may have less conflict that's centered around race. Um, the other piece of it is that, you know, maybe if we had different political institutions, maybe it works a little differently and maybe initiative entrepreneurs aren't as drawn to it. But the, a bit of that is speculation. I, I just know that under these circumstances um, where we do have a diverse society and we do have uh, political institutions that lead to, you know, compromise solution and institutionalized gridlock, we are getting um, outcomes where, you know, where, where, where we have, you know, more polarization, where we have lower levels of trust, and that those seem to co-vary with the existence of, of the ballot initiative process. To, so. um, to kind of back up your point there, Josh, um, I would say, though, that a misnomer um, in the United States is that we're much more diverse than other places in the world. Mm-hmm. It's, right. uh, there's a lot, a lot of places in the world are much more diverse than the United States ethnically, racially, and most importantly, linguistically. And you mentioned uh, Switzerland, which has a very long tradition of the be- of uh, referendum. I would say that in Switzerland, there's a lot more diversity than people recognize because they have multiple languages. Right. It's not, it's not, ling- it's linguistically um, very diverse. My, my understanding with Switzerland is that they are linguistically very diverse, but the cantons themselves are more homogeneous yes. than the American states are. So that part and is that, true. And, that, and that's where, so if you, if you, if that's, it depends on what the, you know, the subnational unit is where you're making those decisions. And so, and that, and that's actually a big piece of this. And that's where, you know, you might argue that, could potentially be a better institution than state direct democracy specifically for that reason that in a smaller community where you know people are are where, where you're not trying to manage as many interests where you may be able to get to sort of a better decision making but but even in Switzerland it took until 1972 to give women the right to vote which, which is a about. which is um which is just a, a fantastic I had no idea and it's kind of crazy yeah to, to hear that um, it's um it's I don't really remember really amazing and and troubling I <laughs> double checked it for this I double checked it for the interview so I know it's true but um I think I came across it in the book on women's right to vote in the United States which mm-hmm amazingly came down to a single vote in Tennessee. I mean, some of these decisions that we take for granted that are widely popular. um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing how, um, yeah, the institutions that are involved in it can, can have a big impact on, on how history moves forwards. So 
The only other thing also I'd add, Justin, is, so I agree with, with Josh, a more homogeneous society, maybe it doesn't have quite the same minority affecting um, impact, culture makes a difference. But I'd also be a little skeptical of the other argument that I remember in the 1980s, you know, um, you know, there's all this discussion, well, maybe Americans are particularly uninformed about politics and particularly um, inattentive to the details. And as I recall the research here, and it's been a while, so some, some of the political scientists who've been involved in the research, like the American voter, they went over to Britain, you know, and other places, <laughs> but, and you find the same sort of things where very unattended of the details, not very knowledgeable, weak, um, weak uh, uh, cohesion across ideas, et cetera. So that, perhaps, but I'm... That's uh, an interesting thing about Britain and about the United States itself. There is a misconception that Americans are misinformed because um, I, I, was, I listened through to the... Uh, great, uh, what is it, um, great courses series on American history. And they actually had a British professor capstone out the course. And he was, I mean, he was from Britain, but he was an American historian. And he mentioned how in Britain, they literally don't have civics courses. The United States, they ask you to learn about the country. And while we complain about the quality of them, in, in, in most places around the world, they don't do it at all. And <laughs> I've been talking to somebody else on Twitter recently and uh, we're talking about the quality of American libraries that people, people just take for granted in the United States that, Hey, we have these libraries and you can go get books and they're available. And if you want a book, you just go to the library and you find it. They don't have it. We've got an interlibrary loan. I mean, there's so (laughs) many options to get books. And she was talking about how when she was in, um, she's from Mexico and she's like, look, in Mexico, they just don't have libraries unless if you're at a university or an enormous city. And when she was in France, they have libraries, but um, people generally buy books. Um, the libraries she described them as um, that they're there to look at, but not to touch. <laughs> so just to, just to kind of emphasize, I mean, United States has problems in terms of voter knowledge, um, and, and maybe that's just an emphasis that the whole world has an issue on it, but to, to say that the United States is somewhat worse than the rest of the world, I think is sometimes an over-exaggeration that doesn't recognize all of the assets and, and, and systems that we have in place to help people learn about, about the country and, and to become educated in different ways. So, well... I've kept you guys on here for, for probably longer than I expected. Uh, you guys have been great. I'm glad that you guys were both here. Um, I, I want to kind of reintroduce the book again. Now, the, we've talked a little bit about empirical data. For those who are listening that are more based on, on the theory side, the book does a very good job of placing these ideas within a theoretical context it does a good job of relating the data to what exactly does this mean. Um, and I do recommend uh, people to be able to read the book, uh, to be able to get a sense of, of, hey, how did they come to these conclusions? What's the historical basis on some of these ideas? Um, what, 
you know, what are some of the examples that they bring up? Because they bring up some phenomenal examples, mainly in California, but also um, around the around the country in the United States. And the book is called Initiatives Without Engagement, A Realistic Appraisal of Direct Democracy Secondary Effects. It's by Joshua Dick and Edward Lasher. It's available through uh, Michigan University Press. Um, I want to thank you guys for both being here and, and taking the time to talk to me about uh, about democracy and, and your guys' findings. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah, thanks, thanks Jonathan. This was great. Okay, very cool. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Okay. Good to see you. See you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.